how can I become the person that I want to be then? What actually can I start doing today? Because as I shift my character now, then to me, in my experience, that gives the body the best chance to shape shift into its natural character. Meaning, as I become the person I'm meant to be, the body has the best chance to become what it's meant to be. So I believe our body has a natural appetite. I believe our body has a natural weight within a certain range at any given time in life. But in order for it to be that, I have to be the real me more and more. Hello, friend, and welcome to episode 42 of the Feeling Full podcast. I hope you're having a great day. I'm Mordechai, an entrepreneur and coach who struggled with being overweight for nearly two decades. But since 2012, I've lost 130 pounds and have kept it off. Join me and my guest today to discover how it's possible and even simple to lose weight with ease without going on crazy diets or without doing intense workouts. If you're ready to give up quick fixes and fad diets and build a fulfilling relationship with your body and food, then the show is for you. Today, our guest is Mark David. Mark David is a leading visionary teacher and consultant in nutrition psychology. He's the author of two best-selling books called The Slow Down Diet and Nourishing Wisdom, a book which I cannot recommend enough. It's such a great book for somebody who's trying to understand what is happening with our bodies and food. Mark is also the founder of the Institute for Psychology of Eating and has trained thousands of practitioners in his mind-body eating coaching training program. For over three decades, Mark has been an innovator in eating psychology and nutrition, I feel really lucky to call Mark a friend. He's someone I truly respect when it comes to understanding my own cravings, my own struggle, and help me work through some of my most difficult moments. In our conversation, we cover lots of ground. Some of the things that we discuss is how to understand your cravings, what overeating can actually teach you, the meaningful lessons when you are present with what's happening in your body and in your life, how we use food to regulate our emotions, and how that's actually natural and normal for us to do as humans, why overeating or choosing to eat unhealthy foods isn't really a willpower problem and so much more. I've been sitting on this gem of an interview, which I originally did for the Reclaim Your Body Summit, which I'm really excited to bring to you today because it's full of wisdom. It's timeless wisdom that Mark shares, and it takes us a few minutes to get into the good stuff, but I encourage you to take out a paper and pen because you're going to want to take some notes in this one. It's full of lots of great information. And before we get started, it would mean a lot to me if you can just take a few seconds to subscribe to this podcast. Not only will this ensure you never miss an episode, but you'll also greatly help with the growth of the show. Alrighty, thanks for joining, and let's jump right in. Thank you, Mark, for joining today. I'm psyched to be here. I'm psyched to be with you in this conversation, Mordecai. Yeah, well, I'm so glad to have you. Just your experience and your personal help to me over the last couple of years has been really insightful, so I'm, I'm so happy to share that with a wider range of people. Let's do it. Let's jump in, man. So I'm really curious, where did your passion for understanding psychology of eating come from? Where did it all start? You know, oftentimes, what do they say? Necessity is the mother of invention. I, I was born into this world sickly and asthmatic and immunocompromised. I had some autoimmune disease. You know, the doctors couldn't diagnose. Plus, I was a stutterer. I couldn't say a single word without stuttering it about eight or nine times. So my parents took me from doctor to doctor. Nothing helped. I was the generation raised on Fruit Loops and Kool-Aid and Velveeta cheese and TV dinners, like nothing natural. I don't think I ever saw fruit. And I was about five years old, and I actually asked my mother to change my diet. At five? At five, yes. And to my child's mind, 
that meant apples and peas and carrots in a can. For some reason, that was my concept of fruits and vegetables. Now, here's the thing. She changed my diet slowly, and coincidence or not, my health started to change. And, and uh, you know, as a kid, I made this magical connection between what went into my body and the fact that it had an impact on me. So it's very empowering. And, you know, I, I took my nutrition passion into my teens and my 20s, learned everything I could. I started seeing my first clients in my late teens, early 20s. This is like back in the 1970s, yeah. And here's what I noticed. I noticed that you can tell a human being what to eat, what to do. I had some pretty smart clients and they come back a week or two later and they said, I know what you told me to do, I just couldn't do it. And I had this weird epiphany that until I understood the mind of the eater, you know, the heart of the eater, the psyche of the eater, what's going on inside of us, then I really don't know anything. And I decided, okay, well, let me go read a book on eating psychology. Let me go take a course on it. And back in 1982, you couldn't, there was nothing, literally nothing. And at some point I realized I'm going to have to write the book that I want to read. And I'm going to have to create the body of work and understanding that I wish to know. So, so that began my journey. Wow. And what, what were some of the earlier things that you discovered with people? Like people, you know, naturally wanted to be healthier. Like you discovered at early age, really early age. I'm surprising that you were five, but you discovered that you wanted to be healthier and eat, eat vegetables. And you noticed when you're early 20s, a similar thing that other people wanted, the same thing that you wanted. They wanted to eat healthier but they just couldn't always stick to it. And what were we discovering early on that were people's you know, constraints around that? You know, the main constraint is, I know what I'm supposed to do. I know what's good for me. I know what's right. I just don't do it. So people are at odds with themselves and they're confused as to why they don't understand. And I remember thinking that that's fascinating to me. That's a fascinating piece of psychology. And that's not just about food. That's about life. So I figured, okay, I really want to see what do I have to do to begin to crack this code. I also noticed this amount of people who were dealing, yeah, yeah, they want to eat healthier, but really what was going on was people want to lose weight. People want to stop overeating and binge eating. People don't have a good experience of their own body. They don't have a positive body image. They want to love their body more. And they're looking to nutrition <laughs> to solve those issues. Now, good nutrition is great. I love nutrition, but nutrition facts and nutrition information alone was not enough to help a person with their emotional eating or their binge eating or to understand why they don't do what they say they want to do. Right. Yeah. There's a, there's a lot more there at play, obviously. Otherwise, we wouldn't be in the crisis that we're in now with the food addiction and you know obesity. Mm -hmm. So what is it that, what, where does this mind-body connection, the thing that you're really you're a genius at, in my mind, and what, what is, where, where does it come into play, right? People know they want to be healthy. They be, I think 95% of people, if you ask them what to eat, if for, you know, for a million bucks, design your perfect day of food, I guarantee most people can do that. But why don't we do that if we know it's going to give us the results we want, if we know it's, we're going to feel good? What's holding us back? Okay, here, here's what I've noticed. And let's get a little psychological for a moment. Let's do it. Most human beings believe that I'm a me. I'm a person. I'm this one guy. 
And there's different schools of psychology that will look at a human being. Yeah, I'm a me. I have this ego. I have this witness consciousness. But at the same time, you and I are more like a crowd. We are a collection of personas. Another way of saying that we're a collection of voices. Another way of saying that is we're a collection of archetypes. So, yeah, I'm me, but I'm also a father. I'm a nutritionist. I'm a psychologist. I'm a jerk. I'm a scientist. I can be an athlete. I can be a lover. I can be a magician. I can be a king. I can be a brother. So there's all these different, I can have an inner child. I can have an adult inside me. What happens for a lot of human beings is there's certain voices in us that we're not always aware of. So in other words, when I step into being a father to my son, I shift my role. So I know when I'm with my son, I'm going into father role. I know when I'm with my sister, I'm going into brother role. What happens is a lot of people eat. And when we eat, we don't realize, but we shift back to a certain age. We shift oftentimes into either our inner child or our inner teenager to a time back when, whenever the hurt happened, whenever the challenge happened, whenever the offense happened, whenever we didn't quite grow out of a certain place that we needed to grow out of. So what happens is a lot of times when we sit down to a meal, it's not the adult in us that's eating, but it's the 16-year-old teenage rebel or it's the 13-year-old girl in us or boy in us that doesn't feel good about myself and is eating because nobody understands me, nobody sees me, nobody gets me, I don't get attention, and this is how I feel good about myself. So for a lot of people, it's learning how to notice what voice in you, what archetype in you, who is actually eating when you're eating. Wow. Yeah, so when I go home to my mom's house, right, my my parents, I notice that I fall right back into the little version of myself, right? Mm-hmm. You know, mom's trying to feed me. You know, I'm home with my siblings. There's all, all of a sudden I go back in time, right? Yes. And I notice those triggers happening. But I also am aware and I notice when it's happening. Doesn't mean I can stop it from happening, right? But I notice it's happening. So I guess the question is, you can notice it, which is, I guess, I think the first step, right? To notice what role you're, you're playing how do you navigate that? Because the emotions are so run so deep in us, mm-hmm. right? It's a great question. Yes. Yeah. So, so, so the first thing to know is, or to assume here is that the goal is for me, when I'm working with a student, a client, a group of people, and they want to elevate their relationship with food and they want to solve the problem. Well, I know what I'm supposed to do. I don't do it. Why do I stop myself? Why do I sabotage myself? And nothing to do with sabotage. So this other voice, is taking over, we have to understand that my goal is that my adult sits at the table. The king in me sits at the table. If you're a woman, the queen in me sits at the table. The adult voice has to sit at that table. Adult doesn't mean boring, it just means a person who's aware, a person who's awake, a person who understands long-term needs versus short-term gratification. When you have the inner child or the inner teenager, sitting at the head of your table when you eat. They're interested in one thing. (laughs) They want immediate gratification because that's what you and I as kids and largely as teenagers, that's what we know. That's what we want. I want immediate gratification. It's built into the system. 
The adult mind gradually learns, yeah, you know, there's some things that give me immediate gratification, but I got to spin that off. Okay. So as you mentioned, the first step is we have to be aware. We have to even know, notice that I'm jumping into this personality, this persona, this archetype, this voice in me. I'm jumping into this other person. Oftentimes when I eat, when I'm home alone, it might be when you're with your mom, but here's the thing. You might not be living with your mom anymore, but there are times when you're at home, you might as well be in mama's house, if you know what I'm saying. Harlan, you know, yeah. Because part of us goes back, we, we, we get in our time machine and we transport back there because, because food does that for us. We will link up food with certain times or phases of our life. So once you become aware that you do that, The next piece, oddly enough, is to have a little bit of self-acceptance, i.e. self-compassion, i.e. maybe forgiveness. Because what happens is a lot of people want to jump to say, oh, my God, I got to do something. This sucks. This is terrible. Woe is me. No. (laughs) You have to understand, welcome to planet Earth. You're a human being. You're going to do this. You're not perfect. And... If I can begin to call off the dogs in that moment, if I can begin to call off the self-attack, I'm pulling myself out of a stress response. In a stress response, I'm going to make quick survival instinctive decisions that help me in a quick fix situation. In a stress response, I'm not going to be connected to my prefrontal cortex, the part of my brain that makes wide synthesis kinds of wisdom decisions that take in all information. So it's being aware, it's accepting, okay, I'm human. Then from there, we start to make adjustments. Then from there, it becomes, and I'm gonna get very yogic here for a moment, or Buddhist for a moment, or scientific for a moment, it becomes a practice. So we have to adopt the practice called, I'm gonna notice when I start to jump into this other voice, I'm going to take a deep breath and see if I can accept myself, even though I'm making this mistake. And then third, I'm going to see if I can make an adjustment. Can I breathe in the adult in me into this moment? Can I breathe in a bigger voice, a wiser voice into my decision making in this moment? As soon as you have one success, you start to build that muscle. It gets a little stronger. You can have 25 failures in a week. And if you have one success, that's a success. So it becomes a practice. Anything, anything, anything that we want to get better at. I don't care if it's a sport, if it's a musical instrument, if it's a language, you got to practice it. Yeah, it's fascinating. I think it's also helpful to like when the voice comes up and you can stop yourself in, in your tracks, notice like a younger version of yourself in your early teens, right? Yeah. Notice that, that what you're about to do, the person behind the steering wheel 13 years old and, and visualize the way you look so you can kind of create a dual identity and you're like all right now i'm me right and that was the boy in me and choose am i letting the boy drive the car right now or do i want the adult or as you say the king um which i love king is great um but the king like drive the car or the king is getting driven around but you know either way yeah but this is the idea and like making a conscious choice that if you're going to let go and you're letting the boy drive accept it and forgive yourself for it and don't be mad at the boy for doing what he's doing because that's what he's conditioned to do and be gentle, forgive, and allow like, with acknowledgement because that's what's going to 
allow him to get out of the mess, right? Because otherwise, the other the other way is obviously shame and and you're angry and upset. Why didn't I? Why do I keep doing this? And then mm-hmm. that will just turn into more of that, right? More shame turns more guilt and more eating and then just letting go. And that shame and that guilt is exactly what that part of us experienced at a certain point in life. We were in shame. We were in guilt. We were in uncertainty. We were in confusion. And the reason why that voice, that part of us is able to take over, it's because we've kind of disowned it. We haven't really listened to it because we haven't been able to. But once you're an adult, oh, okay, I can start understanding this part of me better and give it what it needs. It doesn't need more ice cream necessarily. It doesn't need more sugar. It doesn't need to go on a binge. What it needs is no guilt, no shame. It needs attention. It needs the kind of love and consciousness and awareness that that part of us didn't get (laughs) at that age, whether we didn't get it from our parents, our teachers, our world, who knows what it is. So in a weird way, we, we kind of like reparent ourselves in the moment so we can give that voice what it needs. And we understand and we're bringing that voice out from the shadows and we're letting it know, OK, you have a need. OK. And but the need, again, is for more food. The need is for needs for a lot of love. And sometimes the need is for guidelines. Sometimes the need is for a little bit of no. Sometimes it needs for a little bit of yes. You know, it could be anything. So how do you determine that when you're in the moment? Because when I'm passing an ice cream store, right, and the little boy's like, give me chocolate ice cream, give me chocolate chocolate chip fudge, whatever it is, right, that I love. Yes. Or have loved in the past lifetime. When that voice is coming up, how do you determine what exactly it needs? For me, it's very much about, I think about it as like, what discipline am I using, right? Do I have the willpower, instead instead of going to the ice cream store, to turn around and go to Whole Foods? and get some sort of fruits or vegetables or something else that's sweet but healthy, right? Something that's mm-hmm. still nourish me that way. But in fact, I think one of our other conversations we were talking about this, when I do that, I'm actually just numbing the pain with carrots or numbing the same boy with carrots or, or peppers and not carrots, carrots aren't that, oh, carrots, yes, carrots are sweet. Uh, carrots, <laughs> carrots or peppers, but essentially it's not really working through it either. So it, you need to, there needs to be a way to actually, you, you know, put tools in place that actually work through those emotions so in the future, when they come up, you're able to process them, right? And give the child what it needs, emotions that were never met. Yes. And a lot of times we have to understand that it's so much of it, it's not really a food issue. So yeah, you can say, okay, well, I'm wanting the ice cream. I got to learn how to make a better choice and eat this or that. And a lot of times it's less about making the better choice. And it's more about understanding that Let's just take a step back for a second. I like to say that every eating challenge we face, every unwanted eating behavior you can imagine actually has a brilliant reason that's rooted somewhere in our biology or our psychology or both. As an example, emotional eating, which is so much of what people are doing. They're eating to regulate their emotions. Stated in another way, We humans use food to regulate our emotions. That's what we do. You've done that since you've been an infant. Crying, screaming little infant, okay? It's wailing away. All of a sudden, here's mama with the bottle or with the breast. And in three seconds, (laughs) that crying, screaming little infant goes from crying and screaming to relaxed, to peaceful, 
Because what just happened? Not only did it get the milk from bottle or breast, it got mama, it got loved, it got touched, it got sung to, it got warmth. And to the as yet infant developed nervous system, infant doesn't distinguish between all those different stimuli. So everything is experienced as one. Mother is touch, touch is love, love is food, mother is food. It's all one. So you and I have the genetic memory, as does every person in our lineage back to the first guy and gal. We all have the genetic memory, feel bad, eat food, feel better. My point is, when you and I reach for food to regulate our emotions, there's a brilliant reason for it. Because it works. Because we've been doing that since forever. And... (laughs) We're human beings. You know, what's the opposite of emotional eating? Unemotional eating? Every time you, you're not a robot. If you eat, you're eating. Maybe you're celebrating. Maybe you're happy. Maybe you're pleasure. Maybe you're on a date and you're eating and it's really fun. Or yeah, maybe you're eating to stuff your feelings. Maybe you're eating to stuff your anger. My point is we're emotional beings. So we're always bringing emotion to the table. So it becomes then an understanding of my challenges with food, my unwanted behaviors with food, all of them are a great teacher for me. They're here to teach me something. As opposed to, oh my God, I got this unwanted challenge with food. I overeat, I binge eat, I emotionally eat, I eat things that I know I shouldn't eat and they're bad for me. I gotta stop this behavior. And as soon as we set up that opposition, we're creating a fight. And that fight is between self and self. And if you've ever tried fighting one hand with the other, it kind of looks dumb. Nobody wins. And fighting our eating challenge or unwanted eating habit never works. So the first move is always embracing it, knowing that it's actually here to teach me something. And oftentimes it's here to teach us a bunch of things. So yeah, my unwanted eating habit might be teaching me, you got to learn how to make better food choices. But honestly, that's usually the surface level. What it's also teaching me is you have to learn how to stay away. A lot of times it's teaching us you have to learn, despite the fact that you're 30, 40, 50, 60, 70 years old, that the strategy called instant gratification don't work anymore. Okay, We have to grow up from that. That's a self-initiation. I've had so many people say to me, Mordecai, you know, uh, yeah, I want to eat well, but, you know, I just want to enjoy myself and I just want to have fun. And this part of us, that's that kid, that's that teenager. And we give that voice in us so much more value because it's that instant gratification, immediate fun. And there's a more growthful lesson in that. It's not boring. It's me elevating myself. So anyway, I've just been yakking a bunch. What do you think? No, I really love that. It's really, it's, it's really interesting to think about the fact that every time we feel triggered, we're learning something and it's an opportunity to learn something. So either we can continue numbing and not pay attention and whether we're giving in or whether we're just, you know, not, I wouldn't even call it giving in, but just not paying attention to whatever it's teaching us. Or we can look at it like I'm feeling really triggered right now. Why am I consuming whatever it is? Even if it's healthy, it's, if you're overly consuming, What's going on? And just asking yourself that question, just to stop, say, what do I need right now? Right? Yeah. What, what, what do I need? And I think this coming up with that question, like, what do you need? is really powerful and selfish. It's like, what do I need right now? 
and you're really asking the younger version of yourself. And it's something that I've practiced before. Where I just think about the, what the younger version of yourself looks like or looked like and just say, what do you need right now? And visualize me asking him, what do you need? And then just even if I go ahead and still eat, at least I'm understanding what's going on. There's more intent to it as opposed to just letting go without giving it any thought. Bingo. And let's say if you say, what do I really need? And the answer is, you need, I need these, these five pints of Ben and Jerry's ice cream. And then you know what? You eat it. And then you know what? Let's say you feel like crap. And you know what? Instead of self-abandoning, you stay with yourself. See, people think, well, what if I make a mistake? Excuse me. We've been making mistakes all our life. You know, it's not what if I make a mistake, it's how do I learn how to not abandon self? How do I learn how to not jump ship? How do I learn how to not self-attack even though I just made a mistake? Even though I just did something, I thought it was the right voice, but actually it wasn't. Great learning experience. Next time, catalog that. What were some of the feelings and sensations that made you think that was a good choice? And really what you need to trust, what we need to trust is trust in myself that I won't abandon myself. Because what happens is when we usually make that mistake, we go into self-rejection. What if your best friend, what if your girlfriend came to you and said, Mordecai, you ate something and you weren't supposed to eat it and it made you feel bad. I hate your guts. I'm not going to talk to you. You're punished. You need to go on a diet. <laughs> the, that's what the voice inside the head says, right? right? If your best friend said to you what you say to yourself, they wouldn't be your friend anymore. So it's us learning how to actually be a better traffic cop, a better orchestra conductor of the conversation inside of our head, because it's that conversation that derails us. So once again, instead of now the inner child or the inner teenager, when they make a mistake, who shows up? The critic or the judge. Or sometimes into one, it's the critic, judge, and punisher. Okay, you broke a food rule? Here's your punishment. <laughs> and it's very biblical, you know? It's it's certainly is. It's been very biblical. I, I mean, think of it, our primal creation myth, you know, the story of Adam and Eve. It, it's it's fascinating because it's based on the act of eating something forbidden. So the first couple, they break the food rule, right? Don't eat the apple. And then what happens right after they break the food rule? They feel shame about the body. They're hanging out in the garden. And for the first time, they're covering themselves up. They're covering up their nakedness. Shame about the body. And then they get punished. Adios. You're out of the garden. So all I'm saying is it bears a striking similarity to our collective relationship with food where you have your own food rules, you break your food rule, you feel shame about your body or yourself, and then we punish ourselves. We have all different kinds of punishments. Some people, a lot of people are using exercise as punishment. It looks like they're doing something good. Oh, they're exercising, yeah. Fasting, cleansing, oh, I'm gonna go on this really healthy diet. But really what they're doing is they're engaging in a punishment instead of standing by myself. That's the lesson. To not self-abandon is a powerful personal growth lesson, <laughs> is a powerful soul lesson, if you will. Okay, so th this makes a lot of sense to me. Like, I understand this, and it feels really good. And my question is, okay, average American is overweight. An average American wants to lose 30, 50, 100 pounds, right? 
And so what does an average Amer- average person do, right? I would say American, but this problem is all over. We choose a diet, right? Paleo, the, the any Weight Watchers, South Beach, any diet, right? There's so many chocolate bar, fudge diet, juices, and cleanses. We do them for a week or two, and then if something happens, emotional trigger, child gets triggered, child, go, the child gets in the driver's seat, goes ahead and eats, makes some poor choices, immediately feels guilty and shameful because... I said I was going to do this thing. I promised everybody. I already told my family and coworkers. Now I feel stupid and I feel ashamed. You see, I'm always going to be all that self-negative talk that you're, we're discussing. What's the new way of being? How do you shift here? Is it not taking on? Is it not taking on too much of a diet? Is it not following any rigorous rules? What's the right way to to move forward if you want to lose fifty or whatever pounds? Sure, it's a billion-dollar question, maybe even more than that. So great, great, <laughs> great, great question. Uh, from my experience, the conversation of weight loss is far richer and far more complex than we, than the scientific we has given it credit for. Previ- currently, uh, back until the 1950s, when we really started being in this conversation, the formula that exists for weight loss equals less calories plus more exercise. That's the formula that's really being used across the globe. It's some version. Yeah, I know there's exceptions to that rule, but largely that's the weight loss formula. All the experts put out less calories, less food, more exercise. That's the royal road to royal road to weight loss. If that would have worked, it would have worked 100 years ago. It doesn't work. Collectively, it doesn't work. It has nothing to do with willpower. I have met many, many people who work hard. There's a couple of things going on. So the concept of dieting from the perspective of lower calorie diet. Dieting retrains your metabolism. In large part, it retrains your metabolism to believe it's on a desert island, to believe it's in a time of famine. So you and I have a survival response. As part of that survival response, if all of a sudden we're on a desert island or there's famine, there's not enough food, at some point the brain figures it out, not enough food. Why? Because I'm not getting enough food. I'm not getting enough micronutrition, macronutrition. So what the brain says is, oh my goodness, I am lacking in nutrition. I am lacking in essential nutrients. I better slow down calorie burning capacity. I better store fat vigorously. I better not build muscle, store fat vigorously. Why? Because that's your caloric source in time of famine. Not build muscle, which is your calorie burning tissue. Why would we do that in a survival situation? Because muscle building takes a tremendous amount of nutrition takes a tremendous amount of body energy. You don't want to waste your energy doing that. Everything is about survival, day-to-day, in-the-moment, caloric source. So when a human being is dieting, if they're meal skipping consistently enough, if they're eating too low in calorie, if they're low in a macronutrient such as protein or fat, the brain at some point senses and believes, brain's not smart enough to say, yo knucklehead, you're dieting, you're starving yourself. The brain is just smart enough to say, lack of food source, hungry, (laughs) eat, slow down calorie capacity, slow down calorie burning, increase fat deposition, slow down muscle building, which is the opposite of what everybody wants from a weight loss diet. So people think they have to train their body to learn how to not eat in order to lose weight. Most people, most people need to train their body to learn how to eat in a way that truly works for us. And 
There's many different variations on that. Let me give you an example. Training the body to eat. Majority of people I poll, about 85% of the people, when you ask them, are you a fast eater, a moderate eater, or a slow eater? About 85% of people identify themselves as fast eaters. The act of fast eating is a stressor. It is considered by your brain as a stress. Just like if I poured a bucket of cold water over your head right now, that's a stressor. If I blasted really loud music that you can't stand, stressor. There's all kinds of stressors that are very quick and natural for the human body. Fast eating happens to be one of them. There's actually a reason for that. Biologically, if you're an animal and you're running around your environment and you're eating fast, it means there's other creatures trying to grab your meal or, and or it means you're in danger, so you're in a stress response. Now, when you and I are in an actual physiologic stress response, which can be generated from a lot of things, fast eating is one of them, a few things happen. One of the key things that happens is digestive power is decreased, meaning assimilation. Your day in, day out calorie burning capacity is actually decreased. You burn most of your calories in the 23 hours a day that you're not exercising. Okay, and we burn most efficiently when the body is in a relaxation response. Most people, it's counterintuitive, but that's how it goes down. So anyway, here we are. When you're in a stress response, appetite is deregulated. Why? Why would my appetite be deregulated in a stress response? Well, you're being chased by a lion. That's the classic stress response, also called the fight or flight response. If you and I are being chased by a lion, Every ounce of your metabolic, energetic, and brain power must go into survival in that moment because nature knows that you and I have no more than two minutes in any survival response. It doesn't last for hours. You have two minutes. You're either going to get eaten or you're going to get away or you're going to defeat the creature. One of that's going to happen. So during that time, you don't need to be going, huh, you know, should I have sushi or should I eat, you know, Italian food tonight? No, there there is no energy going into appetite regulation. There's no energy going into digestion. All your metabolic energy is going into survival. So what happens is a majority of people, once again, this is an informal poll I've been doing over the years. What I found is about 80 to 90% of people, when they report, I'm stressed, they're going to eat more. 10 to 20% eat less. And then there's a cross section who they'll do either one. And then they think when I'm stressed and I'm eating more, oh, I've got a willpower problem. No, you're actually being physiologically driven to confusion because you're not in the natural state of digestion, assimilation, and appetite regulation, which is the relaxation response. So you have your, this is the only thing a human being needs to know about appetite. The only thing a human being needs to know about appetite regulation is that it is most natural, most powerful, most clear when you and I are in the physiologic relaxation response, parasympathetic nervous system dominance. That's when you have the most connection between head brain and gut brain, and they're talking to each other. They're letting you know, ah, you're eating your meal. Oh, now you're full because you just got all the nutrition you need because head brain and gut brain are scanning the meal. So... All I'm saying is everybody's trying to learn how not to eat. No, you have to put yourself in the optimum state of digestion, assimilation, 
calorie burning and natural appetite regulation, which is parasympathetic nervous system dominance, relaxation response, most people are living in stress around food. Or they're in the kind of self-chosen stress where I hate my body, I'm too fat, I gotta lose this weight. That's a stressor, my friend. So we're literally generating stress chemistry by our thoughts. <laughs> and you could measure that in a human being because the brain doesn't distinguish between a real or imagined threat. Anyway, I can go on and on about that, but it, it takes the conversation to a different place. Yeah, it's really interesting. And I can completely relate when you're in a rush and you only have a half hour to eat lunch and you got to make it or cook it or get it or go to you know, whatever it is, you are more likely to eat in a hurry, right? And you're more likely to want to eat more. My question to you is, with, all, with knowing all this, it makes perfect sense. How do you actually go into a, a situation that either if you're feeling rushed by your, by your surroundings and your, your life circumstance, or if it's self-imposed by feeling anxious about your body or the choice that you're making or the fact you don't feel good or love yourself, how do you navigate that? What's one or two tricks that you know that work for people? Because it seems like this can be, it seems like everyone's, everyone deals with this. Yes. So the easiest stress reduction technique that's, you know, across the board for so many of the stress reduction disciplines is long, slow, deep breathing. You know, five to 10 long, slow, deep breaths before a meal, no matter where you are or when you are, five to 10 long, slow, deep breaths, the breathing pattern of relaxation response is regular, rhythmic, and deep. The breathing pattern of stress response is shallow, arrhythmic, infrequent. When you and I adopt the breathing pattern of the physiologic relaxation response, you actually fool your brain, you fool your body. Body goes, oh my God, I'm breathing like a relaxed person. I must be relaxed. And you actually create a relaxation response. For most people, you could do that in less than a minute. I love that. Okay. Less than a minute. So that's a simple one. That's a real simple one. You know, sometimes we don't have enough time and we're in a rush. By the way, when you and I are in a rush or when we're stressed, let's say when we're stressed, the main stress hormone, cortisol, cortisol has an interesting impact on your brain. When you have enough cortisol circulating in your system, it actually changes your brain chemistry and it skews your time perception and it makes you think time is running out. So in other words, right now, you're pretty relaxed, I'm pretty relaxed. If we can give you a hypodermic needle, filled with cortisol, in less than a minute, you're gonna be going, hey, 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 like, we have to cover more information in this interview, and time is running out, like, what's going on? You're gonna get agitated. Because in a stress response, remember, time is running out. <laughs> Your brain wants to believe time is running out in a stress response. So once again, because the brain does not distinguish between real or imagined threat. If I'm worried about my weight, self-hating, worried about what I'm going to do next, what, what I'm going to eat, I shouldn't eat this, it's too fattening, I'm creating a stress response. That stress response is shortening time. I think time is running out, so I'm going to eat, eat even faster. So it kind of feeds itself. So our job is to begin to learn to really harness the mind. <laughs> you know, That's in large part what we're doing, harnessing the mind particularly harnessing as learn how to harness the stress and relaxation continuum and learn how to the little things that shift me into relaxation response. Here's another piece. When you and I eat, we're doing something very simple. 
We are doing the same thing that every single cell organism does, every lizard, every insect, every mammal. We are seeking pleasure and we're avoiding pain. That's how every primitive nervous system, every complex nervous system on the planet is programmed to seek pleasure and avoid pain. So when you eat, you're seeking the pleasure of food, you're avoiding the pain of hunger. Now, what's fascinating is if you and I do not get the pleasure we seek from food, you will go to it again and again to get the pleasure you seek. Now, check this out. Here I am, here's a chocolate cake. And I, and I shouldn't eat it, it's not good for me. But I decided I'm gonna eat it anyway. But while I'm eating it, I'm hating myself, I'm self-rejecting, I'm feeling all this guilt, I'm feeling stress. What happens in that stress is I'm producing more cortisol. Remember the main stress hormone. Cortisol blunts pleasure receptors in the body. In other words, when you're stressed, you can't experience pleasure so much. Are you with me? Yeah. Uh, and it's, I mean, think about it. You're being chased by a lion. Once again, stress response. You don't think to yourself, man, I could use a nice massage. Or, wow, look at the pretty trees. Or, you know, a piece of chocolate would be nice. No. Everything pleasure is out the window. In fact, your pain receptors are more active because you've got to realize, did I cut myself? Am I being eaten? You know, what's going on? So our pleasure receptors are blunted. So if you're eating under stress because you're eating too fast or because you're thinking stressful thoughts or you're thinking self-attacking thoughts or because my workday, my life, my husband, my wife, my kids, whatever it is, then we are blunting our body to pleasure from a physiologic perspective, which means I need to eat more of the thing I'm eating to get the pleasure I'm seeking. So then here I am, I eat the chocolate cake and it's not enough. Or I eat whatever it is I'm eating and it's not enough. And then we think I've got a willpower problem. Oh, you don't have a willpower problem. You're actually in a stress response. You actually have a physiologic problem being driven by an unawareness that there's an optimum state for you to digest, assimilate, calorie burn, and regulate your appetite and that's in a relaxation response. If you're going to be in a stress response, your brain will drive you to eat more to get the pleasure you seek. So as soon as you explain that to a person, like, oh, I can let go of a little bit of my self-attack. There ain't no willpower problems out there. I, I want to say people who think I've got a willpower problem when it comes to food, honestly, no. It's learning how to eat, learning how to be present. Because even if I ate, and I'm not paying attention, even that I'm not getting the pleasure I'm seeking. The taste buds are not registering pleasure. So if I'm eating without paying attention, once again, I will need to eat more to get the same pleasure chemistry input that my tongue was looking for. Make sense? Makes total sense. So, so really, so the whole idea of willpower around food, if you're making a choice, it's not the healthiest for you. If, if, if you're present for it, it's okay. I mean, it's, it's, it's not a terrible thing because you're not going to eat a pie of pizza. You're going to have a slice of pizza if you're really present because you're going to feel full and you're going to feel satiated and you're going to feel that you are pleasured. And it's interesting because every time we eat together, you eat really slowly. And I'm always, always inspired by how slow you're able to eat. You have a lot of awareness around it. I'm, I feel like whenever I'm around you, I feel like I'm eating super fast. Mm -hmm. You know, and, and people think slow eating sounds boring. And, you know... By yourself. Yeah. By yourself, it may. I mean, if you're sitting there eating one bite at a time, I mean, you need to 
It feels like, because eating doesn't feel like, most people don't say, hey, I'm going to spend 15 minutes eating now. They're like, oh, I'm going to eat this salad or lunch or sandwich, whatever you're going to eat. And you're going to say, oh, I just need to eat and get out with my day, right? But if right. You, unless you're eating with somebody, then you, they want to enjoy your time because you're connecting over the food. There's a way where eating slow is really about pleasure. Eating slow is about awareness. It's about sensuality. It's about nourishment. It's about sensation. You know, if you truly love something, like most people will say to you, I love food. Most people trying to lose weight will tell you, I love food. Well, if you really love something, do you want to get it over with really quick? Like, oh, I love sex so much, honey, let's do it in 20 seconds. No, it's, it's if you love something, you kind of want to make it last. And eating slow is not about counting your chews or something like that. It's about us being here. And the more present I am with the meal, the more my body wisdom. So you, we literally have a separate yet interconnected nervous system in the gut, the enteric nervous system. It literally innervates our digestive organs. There's as many neurons in our digestive system, nervous system, as there are in our actual spinal cord. In other words, it's a tremendous amount of intelligence in our gut, you know? That's why people say, oh, I had a gut feeling about that guy. You don't say I had an elbow feeling. You don't say I had a kidney feeling. So if you and I want to experience that wisdom and let that wisdom move us and guide us, Wisdom happens in slow. Wisdom happens in the relaxation response. Prefrontal cortex, the arguable seed of wisdom, is active in the relaxation response. And once again, it makes perfect evolutionary sense. When you are running from the line, you do not need to be creating. You don't need to be thinking, who am I when I grow up? Or what great... No, you're surviving in that moment. You don't have time for that nonsense. So in a stress response, we don't have access to wisdom. So part of what we're here to do is to learn how to, it's not even getting slow, it's getting present. And then the more we do that, the more appetite regulation becomes natural and it's not a fight. Here's the thing. A lot of people have what I call toxic nutritional beliefs. And a toxic nutritional belief can, to me, be as toxic as the worst junk food out there. Probably the most common and pernicious, nasty, virulent, toxic nutritional belief is food is the enemy. Food is my enemy. Now, why do people believe that? Well, especially if you're looking for weight loss, what you know, what you've been drilled with, and nobody, you didn't invent this, but what you've been drilled with is fat on my body comes from food. Fat on my body means Nobody loves me. Fat on my body means I don't love me. Nobody loves me. People judge me. I judge me. Hate, weight, hate. I'm never going to find true love. I'm never going to be happy. So fat is like this evil thing. And what causes that fat is food. Therefore, food is my enemy. So I got to control food. Now, if you have that toxic belief, every time you encounter food, every time you come to a meal, every time you think about what you're going to eat, when soon as you sense enemy, the brain goes into a stress response. That's what it's designed to do. So as soon as you identify an enemy, I'm already creating stress chemistry, which is already decreasing my digestive capacity, which increases nutrient excretion. I'm beginning to decrease and blunt my body to pleasure, which means I'm going to be deregulating my appetite. I can likely be overeating or emotional eating now, 
over time, day in and day out, if I'm in a constant stress response, who does the enemy, who does the enemy, who does the enemy, that excess insulin and excess cortisol that I'm producing, once again, signals the body to store weight and store fat and not build muscle. So there's a little bit of inner work that we humans have to do. People think, okay, when I have this perfect body, when I lose the weight, then it's all going to be good. You know, then it's good. It's good. It's good. Then I'm going to be the real me. <laughs> then I'm going to show up. I'm going to, I'm going to be who I really am. I'm going to be happy. And when you actually break down the research, 98 to 99% of all humans who lose weight on a weight loss diet, gain it back within a year. And then so whenever you're reading studies about people who like have, you know, weight loss and this system worked or that system worked, they weren't followed up a year or two down the line. And if any weight loss system was working, truly working, everybody would have jumped on the bandwagon. So all I'm saying is oftentimes what's happening is, yeah, you can make the body lose weight. I can kidnap somebody and tie them up in my basement and, and starve them and they'll lose weight. But that doesn't mean that that which needed to happen to help that person sustain that new weight has gone down. Did they learn how to be an eater? Did they learn how to put themselves in a relaxation response? Did they learn that food is not their enemy, but their friend? Because if food is your enemy and you're creating that stress response, it doesn't matter how much weight you lose, it's gonna come back on at some point because you're still gonna be in food is the enemy and you're constantly gonna be on the lookout. You're gonna be worried about gaining the weight back because we haven't learned how to trust life, you know, trust my own body, trust the nutritional process, trust the process of, yeah, my appetite is natural. When I learn, when I experiment, and when I learn how to forgive myself and learn how to become an eater, then things are going to work. Things find their natural place. Yeah, I, man, I, I completely agree with everything you're saying. Um, I, but I, I can't understand why people why we're getting fatter and fatter as a society, right? Everyone's gaining their weight back or majority of people are gaining their weight back. Everyone's, there's more awareness around health today and wellness today than, than there's ever been. So in your mind, what's the solution to this crisis? Because it seems that things are getting worse on all fronts and we have more awareness than we, and knowledge than we've ever had. Yeah, you know, I think there's a number of factors. I think early childhood diet has a lot to do with it. What I've noticed is now that there's been several generations of people raised on junk food, it becomes harder and harder to lose weight if we have been fed a difficult junk food, high carbohydrate, high sugar diet from a young age. That's a piece of the puzzle. Another piece of the puzzle is, and I think this is an important piece, and this is something that we really have a big say in which is, again, people think I will be in my body once it weighs a certain amount. What happens is a lot of people disembody. And when I say disembody, means there's a part of us that checks out. There's a part of us where the body is actually our life support system for the head. So my head is really where it's at, and the body just kind of carries it around. And we're not connected to the body. We've abandoned it. We're not present to it. We're not experiencing nourishment. We're not experiencing pleasure. 
we, we literally have jumped out of the body. Humans do this. Why do we do it? Because the body's a place of pain. The chances are you've been hurt. You might've been abused. You might've been personally, physically, emotionally, sexually abused in some way, or you're just a kid trying to grow up on planet earth. It's not easy. And the body's where pain is. So I disappear. I disappear into my computer. I disappear into porn. I disappear into social media. I disappear into food. We check out of the body. And what I've noticed, and there's no real science to this, but I've noticed that there's a palpable sense of when somebody is in their body versus they've checked out from it. When I've checked out from it, I can't sense it. I can't sense my appetite. And I believe oftentimes people who are trying to lose weight, they check out of the body and either, and for so many different reasons, it's just a human thing to do. You could be skinny. You could have the perfect weight. I don't care what it is and be checked out of your body. So it's, so it's, so it's not the domain of overweight people. So humans check out of their body. With people who are overweight, they're taught that once you, once you have the right body, then you're going to be in. You're in the system. We love you. You're going to get the hot chicks. You're going to get all the good stuff in life. You know, you're going to get the best guys. You're going to get the money. Like all these prizes come. So I will be in my body when I finally lose the weight. And then what happens is we do all these disembodied strategies. We eat diets that don't work. We do exercise that we hate and can't stand. Think stress response. A lot of people exercise their brains out and they don't lose weight and they have no idea why. It's because of the stress response. It's because of over-exercise, which is a real thing. Exercise that you hate that's motivated by stress, <laughs> you're actually shortchanging the good benefits of exercise. So my whole point is we need to learn how to occupy the body now, even though it might be 100 pounds overweight, even though it might be 50 pounds overweight, no matter where the body is now, until I learn to get in it, how can I possibly expect to have a real quality shape-shifting of that body? If you want to learn how to throw a baseball, you got to get out of your head. you got to get into your body. If you want to learn how to be a potter, okay, you got to be with that wheel. you got to be with that clay. you got to get in your body. you got to focus. If you, anything, anything in life, if we want to have a big ask of the body, if I want to ask my biological machine, hey, I want you to lose 100 pounds, then I have to get in that body. Getting in that body means, means feeling our feelings is embodiment. Loving acts, any kind of act of love or kindness to your body helps embody us. Any, doing anything that you do that gives you pleasure, walking your dog, being out in nature, feeling your senses, that embodies us. Until we do that, we're not in the body. And I just noticed it becomes extremely difficult to lose weight. Until someone's in the body, long-term sustainable weight loss is unreachable. That's what, that's what I'm hearing. That's what I've seen time and time again. And the few, and I mean the few, that have managed to keep the weight off in their disembodied state, their main complaint that they live with is the fear that I'm going to gain it back. And they're fearing that they're going to gain it back because they haven't matured into their body. I mean, people, women and men in their 50s and 60s who've lost weight sustainably for a long time. Right. But but they're still in prison. It doesn't matter. They never got what they wanted. They never became happy. 
they changed their prison from from the prison yeah. of the body to the prison of the gym or crazy restrictions. Bingo. Exactly. Exactly. So we we think that I'm going to get this big benefit when I lose the weight. And the double bind of life is you can't get the benefit unless you become that person. So what I ask my weight loss clients from the beginning, and yeah, you know, with weight loss people, sometimes you make nutritional tweaks. Sometimes you work on fast eating, you work on relaxation response. Sometimes you work on macronutrient balance. Sometimes you have to look at gut health. So there's many different doorways. It's very individual. And at the same time, with my weight loss client, I ask the question, okay, when you get the exact weight you want, when you get the perfect body, who are you going to be? Mm. How is life going to be different? Give me the details. And most people give you the same basic variations on a theme. I'm going to be the real me. I'm going to like myself. I'm going to be more confident. I'm going to be out there. I'm going to have more love in my life. I'm going to have more partners. I'm going to finally meet the right person. Women will tell you, I'm going to fit into my clothes and I'll be lighter. What I have found is there's only two things for most human beings that they can't do right now. Fit into my clothes and feel lighter, but you would feel lighter right now anyway. Most of the things that people say they're going to do when they lose the weight, they could do today, but they're stopping themselves. You can be the real you today. Do you know somebody who weighs what you weighs or more? And they're empowered. They love themselves. They have plenty of sex. They have plenty of love in their life. Like there are, there are fat people who are extremely empowered, <laughs> you know, love their bodies, you know? Uh, so it's how can I become the person that I want to be then? What actually can I start doing today? Because as I shift my character now, then to me, in my experience, that gives the body the best chance to shape shift into its natural character. Meaning as I become the person I'm meant to be, the body has the best chance to become what it's meant to be. So I believe our body has a natural appetite. I believe our body has a natural weight within a certain range at any given time in life. But in order for it to be that, I have to be the real me more and more. So that's the theory that I operate on. Yeah, and I, th- and I, I like that a lot. And I think that you know, it's literally lifting the weight of the world of our, off our shoulders, right? It's literally taking the responsibility of needing to be something to feel loved, accepted, and, and for ourselves and for other people. And I think that's huge because society puts such a, there's such a high price on, like you said, being in great shape and having the ideal body, the ones that you see in the magazines, the ones you see on Instagram and social media. And, and it just it creates a, a desire to be something that's probably not realistic right now for you today. And if you're, try, if you're chasing that without being you today, you're, when you're going to get there, you're going to be dealing with the same problem. And there's no, you think you won't be, but you will be. Bingo. And from that perspective that you just shared, for me, another way of saying that is that every food and body challenge that we face is a great teacher. It has teachings for us. So I'm happy if people want to lose weight. Great. And along the way, let's, let's notice how that extra weight is a teacher for you right now. What's it asking you to learn? How's it asking you to grow? Oh, it might be asking me to learn to self-love, even though I'm getting all this judgment from the world, even though it feels like I'm getting all this judgment from the world. And myself. Yes, 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 yes. 
it teaches me that judging self don't work. It doesn't buy me anything. People think, people think that self-punishment, self-hate, and self-rejection, if I do that enough, if I look in the mirror and curse myself enough and beat myself up enough, somehow that's going to motivate me <laughs> to lose this weight, which will then, when I lose the weight, it's going to end up with me being happy. I'm going to love myself. How can a journey filled with self-hate, self-attack, and self-rejection possibly end up in a destination of self-love? It's illogical. It doesn't work. So that's something I believe any human needs to learn. And it's certainly one of the lessons that extra weight teaches us in this day and age, that empowerment starts now. You want to lose weight? Great. And along the way of that journey, we have to step into our power now. 100%. You have to start to be the real you now. You have to start to occupy this body now and learn to love it now. And you don't have to be in love with it. I get it. But learning to love it means doing loving acts of kindness for it because it is you. It's me. This body is me, no matter how it morphs. I mean, would you tell your baby, you know, I, I don't love you. You have too much baby fat. Um, but when you grow up and that baby fat turns into muscle, yeah, then I'm going to love you. Like, no, you wouldn't say that to any, any, any young person. But we're constantly saying that to self. Doesn't work. Yeah. So with all the, you know, coaches online and there's people that all over the internet that are selling their products or services, how do you how does somebody who's struggling with weight know who to listen to? I mean, there's a new diet. Every you know, every doctor's got a new diet. You know, every celebrity is selling a diet or mm -hmm. celebrities are into health. So, you know, all the fitness programs, Instagram people, like how do you know who's to follow because if you're just following 50 people on Instagram that aren't to health and they're posting stuff all along, you're getting all this information the way we're digesting info today. How do you know who's right and who's wrong? One person says only eat vegetables. Another person says don't eat animal proteins. Another person is like fat, do intermittent fasting. Like there's so much informa information today and it seems more confusing and more complex and navigate than ever before. And I know you're the right person to ask because you certify coaches. In your mind, how does somebody who's getting started on their journey find the right person to look at? Yeah, it's, it's such a big challenge, Mordecai, and I'm really glad you asked that question. I think it's, it's good to acknowledge that the reason why so many humans get confused in this area is because it's confusing. Right. <laughs> it's truly confusing. There's no scientific agreement. There's not 10 guys in white coats with long white beards, <laughs> you know, all agreeing this is one true way. So as a consumer of information, we are deeply challenged. I think it's important to understand that if you're hearing false, what sounds like a false promise, if you're hearing a diet that sounds extreme, then chances are it is and it's not sustainable. I have tried when I created the Institute for the Psychology of Eating, I decided I, I kind of wanted to thread that needle. So, you know, we train our coaches, our eating psychology coaches, our mind-body eating coaches, in a body of work that looks at each person as an individual. Because for some people, let's say when it comes to weight loss, you really have to focus in the nutritional realm just a little bit more. For some people, you have to focus in the emotional realm more. For some people, you have to focus on their stress relaxation continuum. For some people, it's a combination of all that. For some people, you have to dive into their gut health a little bit more. So it's, it's really 
understanding a person's story. There is no one size fits all to the weight loss challenge here. And I think it's a journey. You know, it's really a journey. A journey meaning if I'm trying to lose weight, I have to agree that, okay, I'm, I'm stepping into the wilderness here. Right. And if I'm stepping into, this, into the wilderness, I want a guide who understands, yeah, we're walking into the wilderness, but I got some good equipment here. I got some good distinctions. I have some good insights. And then it becomes experimentation. Let's try this. Let's look at this. This has a high probability of success. Oh, you've tried this, this, this. Great. We're not going to do that because that didn't work for you. So it's learning how to eliminate different possibilities that have already been tried. And it's learning how to see, you know, really also how much weight does a person legitimately have to lose? You know, people talk about weight loss and some people legitimately have weight to lose. Some people invent a number that they get really attached to that number. Completely made up. Yeah. And they worship it and they put it on their altar. And when that number doesn't come, they're in a living hell. Or when it does come, they can be in a loving hell too. <laughs> exactly, exactly, exactly. So, so it's really learning how to look at each person individually and helping them empower themselves, helping them embody, and then giving them the right tools and strategies that are designed for them and their own unique journey based on when did you gain the weight? How, how much time did it take to come on? What have you tried? And trying to understand What's the brilliant reason rooted in biology and psychology why that might happen? Oh, is a good reason. It could be a nutritional reason. It could be, you know, heck, there's a lot of people that I meet who you just simply manipulate. You change, you work with the time of day that they eat. They're high-stress people. They're living in a big city. They work in a job. They have a small, tiny breakfast. They have a tiny lunch because they're really busy. And they finally get home late at night. And I have a big dinner at 9 p.m. in the evening because they can finally relax and sit down to dinner, have a couple of glasses of wine, and they can't understand why they can't lose weight. Well, your metabolism is different at different times during the day. Sumo wrestlers, how did those guys gain weight four or 500 years ago? They didn't eat Ben and Jerry's ice cream. What they did was they discovered that your metabolism is slowest in the late evening and very early morning hours. So they wake themselves up in the middle of the night and they have a bunch more sushi taking advantage of the fact that my calorie burning capacity is lowest in the evening hours. So you just manipulate a part. You, you could just work with their, what's called biocircadian nutrition, meal timing. For some people, that can stimulate weight loss. So everybody's different. And once I realize that, once we realize that, then our listening in terms of what we're trying to attract in terms of health becomes a little different. Yeah, it's really interesting. And I think um, I think what I'm hearing is patience, right? We have this culture of instant gratification. You know, be gentle with yourself. You may be 20, 50, or 100 pounds overweight, but it's a journey. And know that going on the journey the right way, you'll get to the destination where you need to be, you know, and just do the work. It's like when you, it's like doing anything. You're buying a house. You don't just go buy the first house. You go shopping. You inquire. You find realtors. You, it's a process. You know, and the same thing with your body. It's like you don't don't just commit to the, the diet that everyone seems to be on at the time and, and assuming you get the results that you want. And then before you know it, you you know, you get those results and you don't you don't and you never end up getting the real results. Yes. 
And, and to your point, the big thing is not only supporting self and standing by self, but also getting the kind of support outside of us that elevates us, that doesn't bring us down because it's easy to surround myself in a social circle that's more toxic around body and weight. It's easy for me to find fitness professionals or dietitians or nutritionists or weight loss experts who are all about punishment and all about willpower, and that nonsense doesn't work. So it's really learning to attract good support for ourselves because sometimes we need help. 100%. Mark, this is amazing um, in, um, information. So appreciate you sharing this information. I can talk to you about this forever. We're both so passionate about it, and you have such a wealth of knowledge. So thank you so much for coming on to the show. I look forward to talking to you soon. Mordecai, thank you so much. I'm so glad you're doing this. I'm so glad you're getting this information out into the world. And I'm, I'm really thrilled for you and what you're up to. And great job, my friend. Lots more to come. Thanks, brother. Hey, one more thing before we say goodbye. My goal is to make Feeling Full the best possible podcast you listen to. And I love your feedback. If you have comments, ideas for future shows, guests or topics, or just feedback in general, you can email me at m@feelingfull.com. You can also find out more about the show and all the past episodes at feelingfull.com. And if you found this episode valuable, please share it with a friend or leave a review. Until the next episode, take care, be well, and feel full.